Judges chapter 6. Let's go ahead and all stand up together for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. We've got a lot, a lot to get through today. And so we're, by no means are we going to be able to read through this entire account. Uh, so take notes. We're going to hop around, go back, read it all later, and then uh, fill in the blanks. Okay, Judges chapter 6, verse 11 says this. The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Eberzite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if, it, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike down Midian as if it were one man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. And we thank you that we have the ability and the privilege to be able to peer down history and see exactly what happened. And so, Lord, I pray as we take a few moments to just look into this account, God, that you would um, reveal to us timeless truths about how we should operate in our life in relation to you. Lord, that we might approach the scripture humbly, looking for you to speak to us through it, so that we might leave here today knowing you more and being more like your son. God's in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. Well, today is Upward Sunday, and in honor of Upward Sunday, I want to share with y'all some of my heroic athletic feats. Come on, guys. Why are y'all laughing at me? Yeah, you, so you're probably looking at me, you're probably looking at my form, and you're probably like, ah, oh, that guy was a band nerd, or that guy was a a math geek or whatnot. And while that may be true, while that may be true, I also had some pretty amazing athletic feats. You may not know this from looking at me, but I promise you this, in my prime, I was ready to go. When I was a kid, I would go play football out in the front street of my house. Probably not the safest thing to do, but that's what I would do. And man, I was throwing touchdowns. I was catching touchdowns. I was spinning people off. I was stiff arming, breaking tackles. No one could stop me. To be fair, I was playing by myself. And they were all imaginary. So, <laughs> no, in reality, I was no, uh, I was no all-star. Uh, I was the B team guy. Any B teamers? Like if there was a C team, I would have been on the C team. <sighs> I was not an all-star. I uh, was very unimpressive in my athleticness. Uh, in fact, I was so unimpressive that when I played little league baseball, the coach forgot I was on the team. Uh, <laughs> true story. 
Um, yeah, so we were in the middle of a game, and so in baseball, you know, they bat on a rotation, and so, you know, once you go down the list, you start back at the top. We were in the middle of the game, and I realized uh, that there were multiple people that had batted before me, and, uh, or they had batted multiple times, and so I was wondering, when am I going to bat? So actually, I went up to my coach, and I said, hey, coach, um, I haven't got to bat yet. When, when am I going to be able to bat? And I will never forget um, what happened next. Panicked, he looked down at his clipboard, looked back at me, looked back down, looked back at me, and said, who are you? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Poor Chris, right? Before you start to feel too bad for Chris and for little Chris, don't worry. Things happen. It's not a big deal. Like, I've gotten over it. My therapist says I'm getting better each day. So I say that, the reason I say that, and the reason I share with you my heroic athletic feats and some of the past trauma concerning sports is that some of y'all may relate to that. Some of y'all may be here and you're like, I am not the all-star quarterback. I am never going to be the Hall of Fame guy. I'm never going to be starting on the basketball team. I am quite unimpressive. And if that is you, welcome. You are in good company, not with just me, but with Gideon from our passage today. Gideon is that guy. And, like, and that might sound a little bit off because you may have heard the story of Gideon and you're like, hold on, wasn't Gideon the guy that led Israel to victory over the Midianites? And the answer is yes, but when we first encountered Gideon, that was not him. Gideon was not the all-star guy. He was not the, the strongest guy in the world. He was certainly not the most courageous guy in the world. In fact, he was quite the opposite. So, so let's hop in and see what Gideon is like. And so we're going to hop back to Judges uh, chapter 6, verse 11. And it says this, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was an Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Eberzite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So let's hold off there for a second, because a few of these things need to be explained as to what's going on. For one, there was a war, if you could call it that, there was a war going on between the Midianites and the Israelites. I say that it's not much of a war because in reality, it was more like the Midianites were oppressing the Israelites. The way that the Bible describes it is that the Israelites would plant crops and try to grow crops, and the Midianites would come in, it says they came in like a swarm of locusts, too big to even count, and would ruin all of their stuff. Someone's got a phone call. They would ruin all their stuff. And so they were being oppressed by the Midianites. Now, where is Gideon, the great warrior of God? He was threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, here is where um, the context might get lost on us a little bit because this statement, he was threshing wheat in the wine press, made no sense back in that day. If they were to thresh wheat, uh, where they would go is to the top of the hill. The reason they would take the wheat up to the top of the hill and as they thresh it, it a byproduct of that is chaff. And if you know anything about chaff, it's very light and they want the chaff gone. That's not a, it's not a good part of it. So they would get up on top of the hill where there's lots of wind going through. So that way when the chaff was created, the chaff would blow away. The wine press, however, was not at the top of the hill. The wine press is historically at the bottom of the hill. So why is it that Gideon, when threshing wheat that was supposed to be at the top of the hill, why is he at the bottom of the hill in the uh, wine press? 
Well, it tells us, it says, in order to hide it from the Midianites. The great valiant warrior of Israel is not engaging in the battle, he's hiding from the battle. And then God comes in and enters the picture. So the very next verse in verse 12, it says this. It says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Some of your passages or translations may uh, make that mighty warrior. But why did he call him that? Like he was hiding from the battle. Um, This was like someone coming up to me and saying, hey, Chris, behold, the Lord is with you, mighty Hall of Fame batter in the MLB. That's not me. It's like, calm down. The coach doesn't even know that I'm on the team. That's not me, right? And so it doesn't make sense that God came and called him a valiant warrior. And, and uh, Gideon even responded that way. He responded saying, how am I going to be the one that delivers Israel from the Midianites? Like I'm, I'm not even, um, I'm the youngest in my clan, or sorry, I'm the youngest in my family and my clan is the weakest in the area. So why is it me? Why am I this valiant warrior? And here's the reason. It's because God, when he called Gideon a valiant warrior, he wasn't referring to Gideon in his current state. What he was referring to is who Gideon was to become when God was on his side. And here's the reason why. It's because God, whenever God demonstrates his strength, he always demonstrates his strength through our weakness. And we're going to get into why that is. But that's where I want to land, is that God came to Gideon in his weakness and called him to something greater. And I believe that God is doing the same for us, that God is calling us to something greater. But first, things have to happen before we get there. And so we're going to take a look at this passage of Gideon, and we're going to um, walk our way through the account of it to see Um, the transformation of Gideon from a scared farmer to a valiant warrior and see what exactly God called him to do in order to get to that point. Because if we are going to be called to something greater, we are going to need to walk through those same steps as well. So we're going to walk through this passage and I'm going to present to you three things that God called Gideon to stop doing and three things that God called Gideon to start doing in hopes that we can apply those things to our life as well. Cool? Make sense? All right, here we go. So God called Gideon to be the one to deliver Israel out of oppression. And um, no surprise, Gideon was a little bit reserved about this. Again, he was hiding from the Midianites. He was scared of the Midianites. So he's a little bit reserved about this and his reservations are made known pretty quickly. So hop back into Judges 6, verse 17. Uh, He says this, Then he, Gideon, said to him, the angel of the Lord, If I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. So that makes sense. Like Gideon's like, hey, if this is real, if you're really here, if you really are going to be with me and I found favor with you, then I need a sign or a miracle, if you will, to prove that this is happening. So Gideon said, hang on right here. I'm going to go. He grabbed some offering items, brought it back, set the offering on a rock, and then boom, the uh, fire came out of the rock, engulfed the offering. Now, I don't know your um, interactions with rocks, but they usually don't combust in fire. And so this was a sign enough for Gideon to say, okay, the Lord is with me. Let's get going. Only it wasn't. A little bit later, we find that Gideon 
has his reservations again, and so he asks for yet another sign from God. So this is a little bit down the passage, Judges uh, 6.36. We pick it back up. And it says this, it says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. So God obliges, right? So Gideon lays the, the fleece on the ground. The fleece uh, is made wet and the ground is dry. It is confirmed again. There's a sign com confirming that God is with Gideon and, and uh, Gideon has his favor. So we're good to go. We're ready to go into battle, right? <sighs> no, not yet. Because Gideon, yet again, asked for another sign. In the very, uh, sorry, two verses down in verse 39, it says this. Gideon then said to God, don't be angry with me. Which, by the way, if you start a conversation that way, it's probably not good. Like, conversations where you start, it's like, listen, don't be mad at me about what I'm about to say. It's not a good way to start a conversation. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak just one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. So now instead of making the fleece wet and the ground dry, I want you to make the fleece dry and the ground wet. God obliges him yet again and makes this happen. There's another sign confirmed. So three times Gideon had to test God in order to trust God. And at, at some point, what Gideon has to realize and what we're going to have to realize is at some point we have to stop testing God and we have to start trusting God. And that's our first point for today, is that God calls us to stop testing him and to start trusting him. And I think there's something very natural in us to want a sign to confirm an abstract statement, right? Like, like if someone is making a claim, it's a very natural thing to want someone to support that claim with evidence. And this isn't just in faith, this is like with anything in our life. Like, like we want evidence to support claims, we want actions to back up words. When me and my wife uh, were dating, uh, we set one rule uh, from the very beginning, and, and that rule was that we were not allowed to say I love you to each other until we got engaged. That was one of the biggest things we got pushed back on from other people, as if, it, as if our relationship mattered to other people. So we weren't allowed to say I love you before we got engaged. Now the reason why we put that rule in place is because when I say the words I love you, there's meaning behind those words. I don't want them to be empty. And how can I communicate meaning but with a sign? And so whenever I say I love you, I want to back that up with a ring that says, hey, I promise that these words are true and that one day we're going to spend the rest of our life together. Here's where you say, aw. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Single guys, take note. So words are cheap, but actions are costly. And so I wanted to be able to back up my words with a sign. And that's only natural, right? It's only natural when someone makes a massive claim that we want a sign to back up that claim. Now, here's the question, though. At what point do we stop... At what point do we have sufficient evidence to back up a claim? And at what point is our desire for test becoming an excuse? And that's what I think happens a lot of time in faith. A lot of times we are 
asking God for signs and miracles to prove his truth. And it's not really to prove his truth, but rather it's to give us an excuse for our unbelief. I think a lot of times it's easier to, instead of deal with my unbelief and my sin, it's easier to push it back on God and say, God, if you just provide this test, if you provide this sign, this miracle, then I'll believe in you. Like, for example, God, if you are real, make a Tesla appear in my driveway. And then I will say, the God of Jacob is with me. He has found favor upon me, right? Because at that point, here's what's going to happen. One of two things. I'm going to have a Tesla, which is cool. Or... There's not going to be a Tesla there. And then now it's not my fault that I'm standing in unbelief. It's not my fault that I'm standing in my sin, rejecting God. It's God's fault because he has yet to provide the test that I've given him. You see, you see where I'm going with that? The Pharisees tried to do this with Jesus. So the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew came up to Jesus and they said, if you're the son of God, provide a sign for us, a sign from heaven. And Jesus did not like this test that they were giving him and got very upset with him, said a few things, but he ended the statement with a wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign from heaven and they will get no sign except that of Jonah, which was referencing Jesus dying on the cross, laying in the grave three days and raising again. Now, why was Jesus so harsh with the Pharisees? Like, it make, again, it makes sense to, to ask for a sign. Here's why. It's because at this point, this isn't the start of Jesus' ministry. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he has given how many healings, how many miracles, how many signs have come up until this point. And so their, their demanding a sign had nothing to do with them trying to fuel their belief in him. Them demanding a sign was nothing more than them testing God. And even if he gave them a sign, they would explain it away the same way they explained away all the other signs. And so Jesus says, no more. You don't get any more signs. You've had sufficient evidence to see that I am who I am. At this point, it's no longer about the signs. It's about your disbelief. And we have to come to that same conclusion. We have to come to the point where we have to stop testing God and start trusting God. We have to stop demanding that God prove himself and and work with the sufficient evidence that he's already given us to trust him and to move forward in that. That's what Gideon did. That's what we need to do. Stop testing God. Start trusting God. All right, let's keep going. So Gideon starts to trust God, and so we're ready to go into battle, right? Well, let's gear up for war. Let's go take out the Midianites. That's not what happened. So after Gideon starts to trust God, God actually doesn't send Gideon into battle. He doesn't even send Gideon to get the people rallied up to get ready for battle. He does something else. He, he gets Gideon to start to work on the heart of Gideon and the heart of his people because that is the primary issue that God is trying to deal with. So let's take a look at what happened. So Judges uh, 6 verse 25 says this, on that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old, then tear down the altar of Baal and, uh, that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So what's going on here? God is telling Gideon, hey, you need to go tear down these altars to pagan gods and pagan idols before we ever do anything. Now, here's the interesting thing. Where were these altars located? They weren't in the Midianite camp. 
They weren't in some other tribe around them. Who did they belong to? His father, they were in his own backyard. They were in the Israelite nation. And that's, this is the whole thing. So, so we didn't have time to get into it. But before Gideon even enters the picture, the Bible explains that the whole reason that the Israelites are in this predicament with the Midianites is because they had abandoned God, rejected God, and uh, chased after evil and pagan gods and idols. And that's the whole reason they're in oppression with the Midianites. And so if what got you into the problem was turning your back from God, what is gonna get you out of the problem is turning back towards God. See, the Midianites were just a symptom of the problem, but the heart of the Israelites was the root of the problem. So God is much more interested in dealing with the heart before he ever even deals with the Midianites. And so this is where we're going to land for our second point. Our second point is God calls us to stop chasing idols and to start following God. Stop chasing idols and to start following God. And I think a lot of us are in the same position that the Israelites are in. I think uh, we at some point we have decided to start following God and we have decided to place our faith in him and, and move our life towards him. But slowly but surely over time, idols have started to work their way in Sin has started to creep its way in and altars were built up in our life, not to God, but to other things. And so we have to ask ourselves the same question that the Israelites asked themselves is, at what point do we tear down these altars so that we can rebuild it to God? Has anyone ever assembled Ikea furniture before? Yeah, not the most fun thing to do. So I am, uh, I am a pretty much a rule follower uh, now, and so I follow the instructions pretty much to the T. But if you've ever put together IKEA furniture, there's like a million parts, and they all look very similar to each other. And so inevitably, every time, here's what happens. I'm putting it together, I think I'm following the rules, and then about halfway through, I realize I either used the wrong part or I put the part on backwards or something. And so now the holes aren't lining up anymore, right? And so now I'm left with a choice. Do I pull out my drill and start making new holes to make it work? Or do I cut my losses, tear it all apart, and re-put it back together? You drill the holes? <laughs> That's not where my illustration is going. Okay. <laughs> I think we're there with our, with our own life, is that somewhere along the way, we have built up things in our life and we have taken wrong turns and we've built wrong blueprints. And what we're left with is not an altar to God, but we're left with an altar to ourselves. We're left with an altar to the gods of this world, to the idols of this world. And I think what God is calling us to do is to cut our losses, tear it all down, and rebuild it. That's what he called Gideon to do. He said, these altars cannot remain. You gotta tear it down and build a proper altar unto me so that way you can properly worship me. And here's what I, I believe very true. I believe that if the Israelites would not have dealt with this idol issue, then God would have not given them victory over the Midianites. Because God is far more concerned with the root of the problem than he is the symptom of the problem. 
And for you, man, I don't know what's going on in your life. And you may be asking God to deliver you from some things in your life. Ask yourself the question, am I committing idolatry in my life? Am I worshiping something other than God? Am I giving my life to something over, giving my life over to something other than God? And man, I think you need to deal with that first before you ever try to get God to deliver you from whatever issues you got going on. Because that's what he called them to do. So I believe that God has great plans for us, but those plans will never happen until we stop chasing idols, repent of our sin, and start following God. So that's the second point. Stop chasing idols and start following God. All right, let's keep going. So we've dealt with the, the testing God issue. So we're trusting God now. We've dealt with the idol issue and now we're following God. So we're ready for battle, right? Yeah, they are. They're ready for battle. Gideon calls all the troops together and they round up 32,000 men. Ready to go, strapped up. God comes in and says, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's too many. Too many men. Now, keep in mind, the way that they described the Midianite army was like a swarm of locusts that you couldn't even count. 32,000 men was already probably going to be too small to be a sufficient army to take out the Midianites. And God is coming in and saying, hold on, it's too many. Bring it back down. We need to dwindle this down. And so Gideon... Uh, agrees with God. And what they do is they go to the men and they say, hey, we're about to go into battle. If any of you is fearful about this battle or trembling at all about this battle, you can head on home. Like consider yourself undrafted, head back home. 22,000 men went home that night. Their army went from 32,000 to 10,000. They lost two thirds of their army. But hey, we're good to go. We're ready to go to the midnights. Not yet. God comes in and he says, hold on. This is still too big. This army is still too big. We need to dwindle it down some more. And so God told, told Gideon, he said, hey, there's a stream over here. So go over to the stream or take your men over to the stream and they're gonna drink the water in one of two ways. They're either going to pull the water up in their hand, up to their mouth, and they're gonna lap it like a dog or they're gonna kneel down to the stream and drink it that way. If they kneel down to drink it, send them home. If they pull it up to their face, they can stay. So he took all 10,000 men over there, 9,700 kneeled down to drink the water and got sent home that night. And they're left with 300. And so we went from an army of 32,000, which was already probably not enough, and we dwindled it down to 300. And you know what God said? He said, yes, this is my army. This is who I'm gonna to use to take out the Midianites. Now the question is, why? Why is God doing this? And the passage tells us. So let's go ahead and hop into Judges chapter seven, verse one. It says this, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the troops who were with him got up earlier to, uh, early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them below the hill of Moriah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them. And here's the reason. Or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. That's the reason right there. God tends to do this a lot through the Bible. You, you might call this a recurring theme where you've got an impossible situation and God uses the most obscure way to fix the solution. And the reason he does that is because of this. He wants it to be abundantly clear who did this. 
He doesn't want there to be any question or any doubt on whether this was man that did this or whether this was God that did this. He didn't want the Israelites to think they got themselves out of, got themselves out of the situation when they didn't. The whole point of dwindling down the army was to communicate to Gideon and to the people that you were going to win this battle through my strength, not through yours. And that's what lands us on our third point for today. And that is to stop trying in your own strength and start leaning on the provision of God. That's what he's trying to communicate to Gideon. Stop trying in your own strength. Start leaning on the provision of God. God is always trying to get us to do this. And there's for a couple of reasons. One, he gets the glory that is due to him when we do that. And two, he is far better equipped to handle the situation than we are. Gideon probably didn't understand what was going on. We probably are not going to fully understand what's going on when God is trying to get us out of a situation. He's going to call us to do things that don't quite make sense all the time. But here's the thing. Our job is not to understand what's going on. Our job is to trust God. And while the world says, you are crazy if you think you're going to take 300 men and go conquer the Midianite army, God says, I can do more with 300 than you can do with 32,000. And this is demonstrated no greater than in the cross of Christ. The cross, if you don't know, the crucifixion was a, a death instrument. It was how they executed the death penalty in the Roman Empire. It was not designed for uh, divinity. It was designed for criminals. It was not a place to prop up the Son of God. It was a place to prop up uh, traitors. It was not a place to, to proclaim the victory over death. It was a place to proclaim death. And God views this low and weak and horrible symbol, and he says this. This is what I'm going to use to deliver my people from their sin. And why? It's because through that, no one can come in and say, I did this on my own. No one can say, I saved myself through the cunningness of man. No one can say, I've saved myself through the strength of myself. I, no one can say, I've saved myself through my own efforts. No one can say that because God has chosen what is weak and low to shame the strong. God has chosen the cross as his path to forgiveness so that we can't boast. So Gideon took this army of 300 and uh, spoiler alert, he defeated the Midianites. But they did it in the most obscure way possible. It's been a while since I've read this, uh, and so I was reminded at how obscure uh, it is what they did. So they took their 300 men, and they divided them into three camps. And they gave each man a trumpet and an empty picture that like held water or liquid. And here was the plan. They said, okay, we're going to surround the Midianites at night. And then on my signal, here's what's going to happen. We're all going to blow the trumpets. We're going to smash the picture on the ground. And we're going to yell, for the Lord and for Gideon. Pro probably not in a British accent. But they, I wasn't there though. But so I guess it could have been. It sounds better when it's like Braveheart. Okay. So they did this, all 300 of them together. They did this, 
and the sound startled the Midianites awake, and then in the chaos of the sound and in the chaos of their slumber, they didn't know who was attacking. And so you know what they did? They started attacking each other and killing each other. You know what the Israelites did? They just watched. And so the Midianites started attacking each other and killing each other until the, the uh, army got small enough that the Israelites could take them and then they went and ran them out. Now here, I, I can guarantee you this, none of the Israelites went home that night thinking, man, we are so great. They went home that night thinking, I can't believe that worked. They went home that night thinking, I cannot believe the power and the strength and the wisdom of the God that leads us. And that's the point. The point is God desires to demonstrate his strength through our weakness. And that's how it is with our salvation. When we are saved by the cross of Christ, none of us should have any room to say, wow, look at me. But we say, man, look at the power and the strength and the wisdom of God demonstrated through my weakness. Let me pray that we do that. Lord, we are so thankful for your word and we are thankful, God, that you communicate timeless truths, whether it happened today, 2,000 years ago, or 4,000 years ago. Lord, we know that you are an eternal God who is eternally good, eternally powerful, and eternally gracious. And so, God, I pray as we close up here today, God, that you would remind us of who you are. And in reminding us of who you are, we might be reminded of who we are. That you are God and I am not. That you are holy and I am not. And that you are calling me to recognize that absent from you, I am doomed to hell. And that you are calling me, you are calling us to abandon the idols that we've placed in our life. You're calling us to abandon the sin that we've placed in our life, that we might build an altar unto you and worship you truly. Lord, I pray that you convict us today, that you would move in our hearts today. We're gonna move into a time of invitation and all this is, is just an opportunity for you to respond and however God is calling you. You might be a person who has spent your whole life testing God and demanding that he give you signs to prove his existence. And maybe you've come to a realization that maybe I need to stop demanding God and just take responsibility for my unbelief. Maybe you're a person that you have placed your faith in Christ, but over time you have allowed idols to work your way, their way in. You've allowed sin to work its way in. You've allowed selfishness to work its way in. And maybe God is calling you to tear down some of those altars in your life and rebuild them up for him. Maybe you're a person who has always leaned on your own strengths to save you. If I just go to church enough, if I'm just good enough, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just pray enough, then maybe I'll be saved. And, and what 
God is saying to us is none of those things are gonna save you. The only thing that's gonna save you is the cross of Christ. And so maybe you're a person that says, I wanna stop leaning on my own strength and start leaning on God's. However God is calling you, this is the opportunity for you to respond to that call. Can we all stand together? We're, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing. And however God is calling you, this is your time. You can come up here and pray. You can pray where you are. You can come and say, hey man, I wanna place my faith in Christ. And we'd love to walk you through that. However God is calling you, this is your time.